Warning, this is an open and frank discussion involving panelists and the public. There is language which may be offensive to some listeners. Okay, I'm pretty loud, so I just wasn't thinking... (laughs) Uh, We are doing this as a podcast, which is why I agreed to use the microphone. Uh, I'd like to thank thank Lisa Maiden with the library. Uh, When Aloma Du and I approached her about this project, she was right there with us from the the first minute. I mean, I think we mentioned the name of the book, and she said, oh, we could do that. (laughs) So, you know, it's wonderful when you have a when you have an idea and the interest just generates itself, and that's that's what this is all about. The other thing is that we, you know, we started this off with a panel about the black experience in Owensboro, and then we moved on to the discussion of the book at the end of October. And because we only got through about the first half of the book, we said we need to finish. The other thing is, someone came up to me at the end of that discussion and said well, what's the next book? So it said to us that we have, we have uh, tapped into something that's important to people and that matters to people and that we need to be talking with each other, not at each other, about these issues. So if you have input in terms of whether you would like to see these discussions, these conversations continue, and how you'd like to see those continue, please let either Aloma or one of the panel members or Lisa or myself know. Uh, we certainly could choose another book and use that as the structure for the discussion, or we could find another way to structure the discussion. Uh, but we're very open to, to your ideas about that. So, uh, let's see. Wondolin, would you like to introduce the panel? Yes, I can. Okay, and you have your own microphone. So. All right, start up first. I'm Reverend Rondolyn Randolph. I am the local president of the Owensboro branch of the NAACP, and uh, I'm also pastor of Pleasant Point Missionary Baptist Church. I've been pastoring for nine years, and uh, also a member of the AAUW. And when they approached me to come and participate and facilitate uh, this book discussion, I jumped on it because it is something that needs to be discussed, things that we need to stop sweeping under the rug. And this would it provided a great opportunity for us to have a frank but yet respectful discussion about real things that we oftentimes think about but don't have an opportunity to discuss with other people. So um, these beautiful people on the panel with me, uh, to my right is uh, Brother Demarcus Carey. Uh, He is a community leader and also a member of uh, Asbury United Methodist Church and he's very involved in in his his church home. And uh, to the right of him is uh, Mr. Samuel Tandy. He is a retired teacher, educator, and coach here at Owensboro High School, right across the street. And then at the very end, we have Miss Angela Oliver, who is an employee of the Owensboro Messenger Inquirer, and she is the editor of the Religion and Values, right? Features editor. Features editor. Sorry, I almost got that right. 
And um, let's just give our panelists a hand. So for those that are, it's the first time that you have participated in one of these, what we did was we came up with uh, a group of questions, a list of questions and topics that we wanted to discuss. Uh, education, workplace, religion, uh, for our first panel discussion on what it's like to be black and living in Owensboro, being such a small minority population amongst the general population, what our experiences are like. And then we went on to discuss the book. And in the book, we could relate a whole lot of what we experienced to what he was saying. And for those that had not, have not read the book, the book is written as a letter from a father to a son to prepare him for manhood and being a black man living in America. He didn't want him to go into the world with his eyes shut to the truth about how our country is set up for minority people. And oftentimes, you know, we quote, we live in the land of the free, the home of the brave, but sometimes that quote or those feelings are not applicable to all people. When we look at the things that we have to go to, go through that are institutionalized within our system of government and society in general. So we had gotten through the first part of our questions. So we're gonna go into uh, question number eight. And what I do is I read uh, certain passages from the book. And our first question begins with talking about living in the struggle. And on page 69, for those who have a book, you can read along, but I'm gonna read aloud and then we'll have the panelists to give their opinions on it. It says, we cannot control our enemies' number, strength, nor weaponry. Sometimes you just, you just caught a bad one, but whether you fought or ran, you did it together because that is the part that was in our control. We must never do, what we must never do is willingly hand over our own bodies or the bodies of our friends. That was the wisdom. We knew we did not lay down the direction of the street, but despite that, we could and must fashion the way of our walk. And that is deeper, deeper meaning of your name, that the struggle in and of itself has meaning. Now, panelists, when he talks about the struggle, because I'm a preacher, I relate everything biblically. The nation of Israel, its meaning means to struggle. The meaning of the name Israel means to struggle. So, or to struggle with God. So when in reading the passage of this book, is this the same type of struggle to which Coates is refer referring to or a different one? What is the meaning of struggle? Anybody? I, I think we always gonna struggle. I don't care how rich, rich you are, how poor you are, you always 
going to struggle. I think what he was saying is um, to be treated fair. If you're not treated fair, that's a struggle. That's definitely a struggle. Uh, everybody, <laughs> I ain't going to say that, but everybody like to be, everybody wants to be treated fair. Not a person in this room don't want to be treated fair. I don't care who you are, where you come from, how you look, you want to be treated fair. And I think it's what he's saying. He wants his son to be treated fair, even though he wasn't treated as fair as, as far as he think he should have. But I'm just going to leave it right there. Is that uh, I think he just wanted to be treated fair. Well, when we look further into the book, when he takes a trip to France, he takes a trip to France. And for those that have traveled outside of the country, your experience as a minority or as a black is different when you leave our country. And if we remember back uh, during the 1920s, there were a lot of people during the Harlem Renaissance who went to France. They went to the European countries because they did not have the same types of restrictions and they weren't looked upon in the same type of way as they were in their own country. And it seems that he was having this same type of experience when he traveled to France in modern time. Because on page 127 it says, and even then I wanted you to be conscious, to understand that to be distance, if only for a moment from fear, if not a passport out of the struggle, we will always be black, you and I, even if it means different things in different places. France is built on its own dream, on its collection of bodies, and recall that your very name is drawn from a man who opposed France and its national project of theft by colonization. It is true that our color was not our distinguishing feature there, so much as the Americanness represented in our poor handle on French, and it is it is true that there is something particular about how the Americans who think they are white regard us, something sexual and obscene. We were not enslaved in France. Now, what do you think about that? Well, I guess to um, counter that, and then I also want to answer your question about the struggle. Um, but to counter that, my experience abroad, I've been to Italy um, for a trip for a journalism class when I was in college. And I had most of the time a pleasant, beautiful experience, but when we were touring, I was the only black student, of course, <laughs> in most of my journalism study. Mm -hmm. But um, when we visited the Vatican and we toured the Sistine Chapel, of course, now the signs around the building say, don't use your flash, because mm -hmm. it messes up uh, the paint or something like that. There were dozens of people in there using their flash, okay, of all colors maybe about three people of color in the whole room. And a woman walked up to me, the gentleman she was with had a camera around his neck with the flash, but I was taking a picture with the flash because who knows when I'm ever gonna make it to Rome again. And she told me, you're not supposed to do that. It ruins the pictures. And I couldn't understand why she felt like she needed to tell me versus everyone else in the room who was doing the same thing. And then also, covering stories there, we went to an immigrant neighborhood, a uh, neighborhood that was known for immigrants in the marketplace there. 
and there were people from Bangladesh and India who were darker than I am. And there was kind of a kinship. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how they're also discriminated against. They're mostly service jobs, maids, things like that. So I kind of had a counter experience being abroad. But as far as the struggle, I think it's important because he's kind of addressing this two-ness mm -hmm. that we maybe have heard about that African-Americans or any people from a different culture than the majority have um, because he's talking about being in the streets. Right. And the struggle that he had in the streets as well as in, you know, a white space. Right. And just that you have to kind of accept both of those worlds, even when you choose not to. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not yourself in either of those worlds. But it's called code switching mm -hmm. when you're around a different group where you can speak, you know, Ebonics. And it'll be understood and you can have now, that kind of relationship. Now, not to cut you off, but mm -hmm. we had a discussion about this um, when we met on uh, yesterday about how sometimes culturally uh, being, you know, black or being white or being Hispanic, you can have a shared experience culturally. And one instance was a passage in the book when he said, um, my, when he was at uh, an airport, he was going to get his luggage. He said, I bumped into a young man and said, my bad. Without even looking up, he said, you straight. And in that exchange, there was so much of the private rapport that could only exist between two particular strangers of this tribe that we call black. Now, another example that can be used, if that's not Jesus, you need to hang it up. <laughs> And, and remember that uh, this is a, a participatory type of event. So if we're in the middle of our discussion, if you have a thought to come up, if you have a comment or a question, just raise your hand. And uh, the gentleman back there in the gray uh, sweatshirt, hoodie, uh, zip up, he'll come and give you the mic so that you can ask your question or make your comment uh, to what we're, to the topic that we're discussing at the time. But getting back to the example of the, the, the closeness or the tribe that you may feel a kinship to, uh, uh, another example was given about a Jewish individual. He said that I was in New York with my brother. We stepped to rest near the World Trade Center. Alex and I switched to Hebrew as we were talking. This besuited fellow rose, walked over, and stood in front of our bench. <clears throat> Shalom. I extended my hand and he shook it. What he really wanted to say was, hey, I'm Jewish too. I embrace you, my brother. We share something tremendous, ancient, and wonderful. And sometimes, we can have this experience with people of our same race, but as blacks sometimes, uh, we get a, a kind of a backlash to that. Sometimes people feel threatened. Sometimes we, we see that exchange when uh, immigrants come in and they're <coughs> in the store and they're speaking in their language. And I can remember my daughter saying, well, I'm, I don't know what they're saying, mommy. You know, well, I just explained to her that they're talking in their language and not to take it personally. But sometimes people can feel threatened when you have this sense of oneness with people of your own race. 
It's not that you're excluding anybody, but it's a kinship that you share with one another because you share the same experiences. Can anyone on the panel speak to that? Kind of relate a little bit. Uh, I remember when I was younger, uh, first time, uh, first time in middle school, uh, I changed uh, school systems, and I was kind of a new person uh, going to the county schools, so I didn't know anybody there or anything uh, about it. But I did see uh, a few other uh, black students, and immediately we kind of clicked, just like almost like instantly. And I was thinking, well. I never knew there was actually other students in the city. I thought, you know, all the black students like in the city schools. But actually uh, hooking on to the ones in the county schools, I know like just instantly how we connected was like, it was, it was amazing. And some people kind of wonder, you know, how did they already connect so fast they know nothing about each other? And it's just something about, uh, as you say, just about that race, you can kind of connect easily with, you know, people with the same race. I don't know how it is uh, going with the opposite race. Well, has anyone ever had an issue or incident that you could describe that maybe, you know, you may have had people that may have felt uncomfortable when you had that oneness? Or have you had an experience where you felt um, a sense of like oneness and it made you feel better about who you are? I've had two experiences. One, when I was at church, and that was a couple. One when I was at a game, that was very comfortable. I'll tell you, the, the, the first one was when I was at church. I went up to this lady just to say hi. And I said, how you doing? <laughs> I didn't know how to take it. But that woman never have to worry about me touching her again. <laughs> I was speaking to her. I won't speak to her again. She speak to me, but she speak to me first. That, that, that right there really floored me when she did that, because I've heard about that. But uh, yeah, this was a white woman who was, oh. Anyway, another incident I had when I was with, I don't know if y'all know a man named Gigi Tybert. Okay, good guy, good guy. He took me to a game. Well, let me, let me tell you this. When I, was, when I was a small boy, you know, when you had games, basketball games or football games, or was this, in this instance, well, you, uh, well, I mean, I say when I went to a, football, a basketball game, you went to the sports center. When I sat at the sports center all over here, when I had a ball, ball game over here, people surround you was white. Few of us blacks would sit, you know, but it wasn't anything like I had experienced. Gigi took me to a, a game. He didn't tell me that the game well, if I tell you that, I just run. Anyway, he took me to a game <laughs> that uh, um, that uh, took me to a football game. So, you know, he took me early enough to get in there, sit down. I guess when we got there, it probably made about you know 50, maybe 100 people there. And I'm just going to tell you the truth, okay? Is that uh, the band came out and these cheerleaders come out and you know they did all doing that thing. The band played the cheerleaders. I was going back and forth, you know. And uh, man, it was nice. It was real nice, you know. It was interesting. If y'all went to, have you ever heard a black band play? <laughs> man, they can get down. They, can, <laughs> they attract your attention. And uh, after a while, I say maybe thirty minutes, maybe it took me, maybe been an hour. Gigi said to me, "Look up." I said, "What are you talking about? Looking up, man? I'm I'm looking at these." These girls doing their thing, and I'm looking at the band, you know, doing. What do you mean, look up? You know, look up. 
I looked up and black people was all around me. I never ever experienced that before. I mean, that was something that I, I was so elated and excited by it. I took my two kids, my two sons, I took them the same way and they would felt the same way. Dad, I never seen anything like this. I needed that. This black dude needed that because I didn't think it was no other world. You know, I thought it was just over the barrel and I was, you know, I didn't know no other world. You know, that was a good experience. You've never done that before. And I'm telling you something else. You white people, y'all need to do that. Go to all black band. <laughs> you, I tell you, you experience that, I tell you, you really like it. You mm -hmm. really like it. No, I, I've done both ways. I went to all white, all black. Uh -huh. Lose is good, you know. But I'm telling you, it's an experience that you'll never, ever forget. Now, Angela, coming from Atlanta, <coughs> that was pretty much your normal. So on the flip side of that, coming from that being your normal to this being somewhat outside of the realms of what you're used to, uh, could you give some insight to how your experience has been? Sure. Um, I would say I definitely have been in situations where um, other black people or people of color in general being around um, makes me feel better because like she said, I'm from Atlanta. I grew up behind uh, the Morris Brown dorms. My mother worked at Morris Brown. Also Clark and Morehouse and Spelman are all in that area in West End Atlanta. I'm used to seeing black people in you know, government positions, uh, college presidents, things like that. So coming to Kentucky, I went to Western Kentucky for journalism because they have an outstanding program. But like I said, I was usually always the only one or one or few in my classes um, coming to Owensboro which is a lot less progressive than uh, Bowling Green, was another culture shock. And for instance, at work, um, there's a black woman who works in our customer service department. And we saw each other, you know, passing in the hallway one day. And we kind of had to do a double take, like, and we gave each other a hug because there is, you know, that familiarity. And um, another example is my students. I'm an adjunct instructor at Kentucky Wesleyan, and I'm, I advise the Black Student Union. And a lot of those students are from out of town, uh, but it was reactivated by a student who just graduated because they felt like they didn't have space on campus or they didn't have a group that reflected their culture or their identity. So they needed something like that. And when they're around each other, they have that comfort because they're mm -hmm. you know, from New York and Vegas and uh, California. They don't have any family here, so they yeah. needed that. And I think it really makes a difference for them. Could you tell the funny story that you said yes. <laughs> uh, last night about how sometimes being in your own culture around people that are like you, there are certain things that you just know because they're like you. <laughs> this is an example of being like in a place where you may have limited contact with people that are like you mm -hmm. at the workplace. And just take it over, Angela. Okay, so for work, um, <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to be in an environment where maybe people don't pay attention to the same things you pay attention to. But aside from that, there was a time where another young woman, a black woman, worked in our uh, page designer department. And I wore a head wrap to work one day, like a leopard. I have an infinite amount of leopard print. So I had on a le leopard print <laughs> head wrap, which is just like when you wrap a scarf or something around your head into a ball. And every, you know, a lot of my coworkers were just, oh, 
so pretty and just, you know, I guess had never seen it before. But actually, the black girl, she came up to me and she said, girl, I know all these people think you're doing something cute, but I know you're just having a bad hair day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because sometimes you wear a head wrap and you can't do nothing with your hair anymore. You got to cover it up. So that was an example of... <laughs> I thought that was cute yeah, to share. You know, because sometimes it could be mm. just small things mm. like that. But if you have a breakdown in communication and when you have individuals that are talking at one another, instead of sitting down and having insightful dialogue, how else are we going to be able to get to know each other and move past these walls that we've built up? Which brings me to uh, the climate and the change that has taken place since the last time that we have met. There have been several things that uh, has transpired, one being the election. For some people, you may be elated because your guy won. But for other people, they may think that the world is about to come to an end. But no matter what realm, uh, what side of the spectrum you are on, we are all Americans and we are all in this country together. So we'll all sink or swim together. So with that being said, when in reading this book and being able to converse and have a better understanding of people across racial and cultural lines, it brings a very important uh, point as to how something so simple as a book can have such a tremendous impact. And we even dug as deep as to make some comparisons to uh, Martin Luther King's uh, letters from the Birmingham jail and how, you know, that relates to some of the things that or topics that he was trying to cover uh, within this book. And, and also in how it relates to the struggle. I'm going back to the struggle because I think it's a reoccurring theme that we are experiencing now within our culture, within our country. It's a struggle for ideology. It's a struggle for power. It's a struggle for everyone to get their voices heard. Me personally, I take this as an opportunity for change. And when stuff is up in the air like this, it's going to land anywhere. And if you're a worker, you can come out ahead. But in this book, he goes on to say on page 142, I want to get this in because it kind of leads into the letters from the Birmingham jail. And um, he is... Um, talking about, uh, talking to uh, a, a lady that had lost her son tragically, uh, and she was really, 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 she had really tried hard to shield her family, her children. She had a son and a daughter from uh, a hard life. She was a doctor of radiology. She was head of her department, and she had exposed her children to things that a lot of kids, a lot of black kids didn't have an opportunity to be exposed to. So he goes in, because he knows this young man who lost his life, to talk to his mother. And this is uh, some of the excerpts of what he wrote or what he said on page 142. It said, the young man's name is Prince. It said, Prince did not apply to Harvard, nor Princeton, nor Yale, nor Columbia, nor Stanford. He only wanted the Mecca meaning Howard University. I asked Dr. Jones if she regretted Prince choosing Howard. She gasped. It's, 
It was as though I had pushed too hard on a bruise. No, she said, I regret that he is dead. She said this with great composure and great pain. She said this with all of the odd poise and direction that the great American injury demands of you. Have you ever taken a hard look at those pictures from the sit-ins in the 60s? A hard, serious look? <laughs> Have you ever looked at the faces? The faces are neither angry, nor sad, nor joyous. They betray almost no emotion. They look out past their tormentors, past us, and focus on something way beyond anything known to me. I think they are fastened to their God, a God whom I cannot know and in whom I do not believe. But God or not, the armor is all over them and it is real. Or perhaps it is not armor at all. Perhaps it is life extension, a kind of loan allowing you to take the assaults heaped upon you now and pay down the debt later. Whatever it is, that same look I see in those pictures, noble and vacacious, was the look I saw in Mabel Jones. It was her sharp brown eyes, which welled but did not break. Now, I compared that to how the individuals in present day in the Black Lives Matter movement are focused on achieving or uh, going towards or working towards completing a goal. A lot of people don't understand that there are four steps to a nonviolent protest. And a lot of people don't realize that the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, a social justice movement because they see that there are issues within our country concerning black people that are not validated. But there are some people who view the Black Lives Matter movement as a terrorist organization. They feel like that they're not a viable uh, social justice uh, organization. Uh, there was even a report of uh, a girl who wore a Black Lives Matter t-shirt to a city commission meeting right in Providence, Kentucky, and the mayor put her out of the meeting and said that she was inciting, uh, 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 promoting a terrorist group. These are the varying views that people hold about the Black Lives Matter movement. But for a nonviolent movement to exist, there are four basic steps of nonviolent direct action. You have the collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive. Most people know that there have been statistical data that shows mass incarceration, there are exuberant numbers of minorities that have been killed or roughed up or falsely imprisoned into our prison systems. And we know because the evidence backs it up. Now, why it is, there are varying reasons as to why. But the evidence still shows that they have suffered. Second is negotiation. 
they've tried to negotiate, they've tried to come to terms with those that are in power to come up with you know, reasons or, or, or ways in which we can work towards a more harmonious society. And then there's self-purification. Now that really opened my eyes when I read the letters from the Birmingham jail because I really didn't understand the extent to which people went through <coughs> when they went through the process of self-purification. And then there is finally direct action. So when they get to the last step of direct action, which is uh, protesting on the streets, boycotting or what, whatever they do, they have to go through the three previous steps. Now, I said all that to say, and I read that excerpt because I have a question that I want to ask the panel. How far have we come in the past 50 years since this letter? What work is yet to be done, and what power or message is conveyed by composing both of these texts in the form of the letter and also in the form of the book and the story that he documented with the lady that lost her son. I'm only uh, 30 years old, so I'm not <laughs> there yet. <laughs> but I do, uh, I look at a lot of black history. And when it goes to uh, during the civil rights time, that's where my mind is set uh, during that era. And when you compare from the civil rights era to right now, in my opinion, there we have overcome some things, but in a way, I look at it, I think that we're going back to that same, uh, same era. The way that things are handled, was handled back to 50 years ago. So you would think, why are we still going through the same things that happened 50 years ago that should be settled? I mean, it's almost like telling the child to sit down 50 million times, in my opinion. So in my opinion, I think we, of course, we still have a long way to go, but I hate that it's, it's taking just small steps. We think that we're in a, this is 2016, and we're still living the life of those who lived during the civil rights era. So what, are, what, is it, what more is it gonna take, in my opinion, for us to say that, okay, we definitely overcome a long way and instead of going back to the civil rights era? I definitely um, see like DeMarcus said, a lot of really unfortunate, really uh, heartbreaking similarities, exact similarities to what King is talking about in a letter from a Birmingham jail because he's talking about police brutality. Um, he's talking about segregation. He's talking about all of these things that we're still dealing with um, right now. And it bothers me, first of all, when people classify King, he was nonviolent, but they classify him as just this you know, meek uh, person who was afraid to be a little bit bolder, and he was not. Uh, people forget that King say a riot is the language of the unheard. And I think that part of what he's doing in this letter is encouraging protest. Um, because at what point, like there's nothing else that we can do. We've been here since 1619, and we're, how much more time is it gonna take? It bothers me when people say things like, oh, it takes time, justice takes time, but it's been, it's overdue, you know? So I just appreciate the letter and I see the similarities in that in the book um, because it's basically kind of advocating things like Black Lives Matter and just to clarify 
Black Lives Matter was started in 2012 after Trayvon Martin was killed um, and his uh, killer was, he got off. He was found not guilty because of standard ground. So Black Lives Matter is in response to state-sponsored violence against black and brown people. It's not about hate. It's just about holding the government, the police officers accountable for how they treat black and brown people. Just to clarify, it's not a hate group, just in case anybody. We have a question in the back. Yeah, I, have, I just want to ask. <clears throat> this is supposed to be a group for conversation? Yes. Is that true? Yes. Well, I see four black people up there. Y'all doing the talking. I would like to hear from the other side how they feel about what's going on. That's the only way we can have a conversation. We can't have a conversation if it's just going to be one way. Right. We, we have to have the other side. So I'd like to hear some something from the other side, how they feel about what's happening. Young lady in the blue hat has her hand up. And that's the purpose of this, because I, and I'm just, you know, gonna talk briefly before you speak. Uh, that's the whole purpose of this book discussion is to foster conversations and bring about discussion of sometimes hard conversations and this is a way that we can lightly look at it without it being offensive because we can have a respectful discussion about hard issues concerning race equality and discrimination without being disrespectful what my dad always says Reverend Lewis he says you can disagree without becoming disagreeable you know <laughs> And we can do that because we got to listen to one another. Go ahead. Um, I don't pretend at all to speak for all white people. I'm just, this is my experience. My Please husband stand. and I, okay. Um, my husband and I, whenever Ferguson happened, we reacted to it in completely opposite ways, which led us to this long series of conversations where we realized that we were kind of on the wrong side of this issue. And so where we are now is we've realized that we need to stop talking to each other because we're both white <laughs> and we kind of live in this white bubble. We go to a church that is almost all white. Um, our kids aren't school age yet, so they don't have any black friends because my family is all white. <laughs> and I'm a stay at home mom, so I don't have any workplace friends that are black. So I'm in this nice white bubble, the blackest friend that I have right now is Doc McStuffins. So, <laughs> so we're in a place right now where we want to try to put ourselves in situations where we are with a lot more people of color and where we can listen. Because we've realized that we don't know the black experience and we're not going to learn it through articles on Facebook as many as we read. We need to learn it from actual people. Right. So I'm here to listen to you because I don't, I mean, I don't know how to be an ally. Mm -hmm. if I don't have black people in my life or if I'm not listening to actual people. So I'm here to listen. I love that there's four of you up there. Um, I, I guess if I'm going to ask a question, uh -huh. my question would be, how do I go about seeking out black friends without just being like, hey, I'm white and I don't have any black friends. Will you say it for me? <laughs> that, like, genuinely, that is my question. I don't know how to seek out black friends without it looking like I'm trying to just 
impose yourself yes. on people. Yes. Well, first, because I'm the president of NAACP, you can join our group. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> and you can download our application on our uh, Onesboro website. And uh, we have a, a mixture of people that participate because it's about wanting to stand for what is right. It's not about black. It's not about white. It's about wanting to stand for what is right and what is true. And I think that will foster more working relationships and more common ground when we take the focus off of what makes us different and we start to apply our energy towards what we have in common. Now there's one thing before I get to you uh, in the letter from the Birmingham jail that I want to emphasize upon that is related to the question that I just asked. He reads, moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an, an outsider. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham, but I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I am sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time but I would say in more empathetic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative. Now you can put Charlotte, North Carolina in place of Birmingham. You could put Ferguson, Missouri in place of Birmingham 50 years ago and it's the same emphasis, the same point, the same call to awareness, to change that everybody was talking about then is still being talked about now. When the vote took place this past November, we looked at it from different lenses, I want to say, because for those that voted, for our president-elect. The majority of them said they voted for change. They didn't want a traditional politician in office. Where for blacks and a lot of other minorities, a lot of the rhetoric were bells and whistles for us. Bells and whistles for us that we could not look past 
And I think because we could not look past was because of our black experience of what it's like to be the other. So the convenience that those who voted for him could look past those bells and whistles to see, oh, that's just Trump, that's just how he is. We could not bring ourselves to do that because of, of our living experience. Now, there were some minorities that did vote for him that could look past it. But for most that are socially aware, we, we just could not do that. So for those that can't understand why most, you know, vote in mass numbers, you know, for Democrat, you know, versus Republican, that is a big reason why, is because there are certain bells and whistles that just ring true to us that, that causes us to fear. She has a question. Uh, well, can, I, can I elaborate on uh, what you're talking about, uh, meeting black friends uh, in my church that I go to? Uh, we was talking about that. How, how can we meet, how can my, the, the um, people at my church, how can we meet black friends? You can meet black friends anytime you see a black friend, anytime you see a, a black person. If you walk up and introduce yourself, they ain't going to say, no, I don't want to be bothered you. I don't believe. At least... <laughs> Most people are going to, you know, uh, respond to you. Um, uh, I have been in places where um, some white friends, uh, people come up and say hi to me. I've said hi to them. Anytime you want to be friendly with somebody, act like you, you know, you want to be friendly to them, speak to them. You know, maybe you can carry on a conversation. My, my wife was here. She can tell you how to carry on a conversation because she, she's, she don't meet any strangers. You know, uh, so uh, that's one way of meeting some black people. When you see somebody, let them know you want to be. Uh, let them know you want to be their friend just by speaking to them. Maybe, Maybe you yeah. don't want to, you know, be their friend. Maybe you just want to say hi, and then the conversation will go. Yeah. But if you don't say anything, there is no conversation. Yeah. You know, uh, let me. I want to say this right here. I, I played football with a guy name, uh, and he's the middle of my church, Paul Puckett. I think his wife is back here someplace. <laughs> we played football. There is no color. We didn't see color. You know, I joined his church, not because Paul Puckett was there. I joined the church because I wanted to join the church. Uh, but Paul Puckett so happened was a football player that I played with. And he, he if he was here, I know he would say, but I never seen, we never seen color. Color goes away when you know somebody. When you get to know that person, there is no color. I've heard of men fighting war, you know. That's what I was just thinking. And when they get hurt, they don't care what color you are. <laughs> get me out of here, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and, and men who have fought war, they, I hear them say it all the time, you know, color just goes. Uh, when I'm playing golf, with the, I, I like to play golf, you guys. Uh, and uh, I could walk up to anybody. I never had a person say, no, I don't want to play golf with you. I walk up to a guy and say, hey, uh, I want to play golf with you. Or they come up to me, hey, can, you, can I join you? Come on. I never have been turned down. Color just goes away when you get to know that person. But when you don't know that person, 
yeah, we have a problem. Yeah. Some of us have a problem. Yes, sir. Well, hold on. Oh, I'm, I'm she, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, because she had a comment first. It's, it's actually no, her. Okay. Yeah, she I'm has sorry. been waiting. <laughs> okay. Uh, your panel to all all y'all is up, up on the panel. We've been doing this ever since 1995, coming out of Wisconsin. But I was been born. I was born here in Owensboro. Mm -hmm. Owensboro had not changed since I was a child. I'm, I'm talking about for its race mm -hmm. here. To me, we coming out of Wisconsin, I thought Wisconsin was bad. But y'all got a little of Wisconsin of it for this race. And to the white people here, I'm excuse me for turning my back. Yes, ma'am, that's all right. To the white people here, I'm tired of this. I'm 70 years old. These are my kids. And I always say, what do you change a mind of white folks? Amen. That's my parents. I said, you went through this. I'm going through this. I'm 70 years old. My child got to go through this. My grandchild got to go through the same thing. My solution, you may not like it, and I know most black people ain't going to like it. I say separate. We need to separate. Mm. Yes. No. Coming out of Wisconsin, we was called in, throwing blooms at, being harassed, called, I'm going to say the word, nigger. You couldn't walk down the street. You couldn't get a place. We went to what? Catholic churches. The Baptist churches, we call meetings to the, the minister, the priest, the chef department. You know how many people came? One black, no ministers, none. For the ministers of, you talking about minister, uh, you would say you preach in the church? I'm not for that. Well, I don't preach, I pastor. Okay, you pastor? I'm not for it. Everybody can frown up or whatever because it's holding us down as black people. I'm going to say it as black people. It's really holding us down. We're scared to speak. I'm not afraid to speak. My children are not afraid to speak. Because if you don't know our struggle, like she said, like they said, if you don't know it, it's people going to bite their tongue and don't tell you. It's, it's never going to turn. Y'all talk among y'all self. We talk among ourselves. We try to have a meeting. Then soon we bring it up. People get mad. Why you bring up race? It's about race. It is about race. It's about my color. And you can't accept us, just let us go. Because this is tiresome. Fighting is tiresome. When you had to have my grandkids out from 95 to when we came to Orangeburg to St. Joseph, fighting against race, and then you had a nerve, I ain't saying y'all, the nuns, uh, the priests had a nerve to say, I'm taking things off of your walls. I want to change your religion. What is your religion? The religion of European religion is white religion. There's nothing in it about me. It may hurt y'all, and you need to be hurt because we are hurting. The panel, some of the panelists are saying, but they won't really tell you the truth. This is tiresome. Fighting is tiresome. Now you got Trump in there, just like she said. He's in there. What are you going to do? He started this race thing all back over again, throwing out in the window, little magic. We know what you're talking about. Owensboro now used to be real nice some of the time. Now the outside is coming in. Some of you guys are changing. Used to be, honey, can I help you open the door? Now, what's that on your head? You know, I uh, won't wait on you at, at the counter. I can go to the counter. What, white folks come there? I'm standing there. You know what they do? Pass me. Go to them. Hey, I got an attitude. Then go get mad. Well, now she's got it. You darn right I got an attitude. You know, come. I was here first. I don't have to keep dealing with this mess. 
And that's all I got to say. So you thank you. Thank you. And remember, we're only here for a little while, so we have to keep our comments yeah, limited. Y'all got to break it down and let other people, like he said, other people got to speak. I, um, I was trying to get back on FARS. Um, it had to do, okay, for instance, when my family came in 76, I went to Burns Middle School, and I was the only black child there. And it was one black boy that was there, but he, he left the same day I came. So by being in my own, being around black people, I didn't experience the things that I was going to come into now. So being in all white school, I had, um, I had a lot of nice white friends, but it was a lot that didn't understand, didn't know of me, whatever. So I had an incident that one of the kids called me a spook. I didn't know what that was because we didn't have, I'm coming from a black, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know mm -hmm. what you're talking about. So I just left it at that and went home and asked my parents, what is a spook? So my father like, well, he said, that's something they call black people. I'm like, oh, really? You know, now I'm not scared at this all-white school. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't wait to get back to school the next day. So when I got on the bus, the boy, he said his little word again. First thing back then, the thing was your mama. Mm -hmm. So when he said, I'm like, your mama's spook. He didn't <laughs> say nothing else. So I didn't have no problem with that, but it's just strange. This is 40 years ago. Now we're coming back. This is 40 years ago. My daughter, she goes to, uh, she was at Orangeville High. Only around black people now, coming from where we come from. So now she's going through the same thing, and it's funny how things didn't change. Now when she come, she like, how do they sit there and let people call us niggas? And nobody say anything. Because hmm. we come in somewhere else different. We come from an area that black people didn't allow that. White people, you, you know, we spoke, you kept Respect going. Respect for one another. Right. You right. had your incidents, but you had the ones that was cowards and. Mm -hmm holler nigga and throw stuff right there, you know. But it's just saying that high thing. And white people, you gotta have an open mind. You just gotta have an open mind. And like I always say, tell us why don't you like us? You can't take one black experience that you had and think we all like that because we don't do it. So. Thank you. Sheriff Kane has a comment. <clears throat> Thank you. I want to address just two or three things that have come up tonight. <laughs> Can't hear it. All yeah, right. Yeah, you can. Let me get back to where you just uh, where you first started at tonight, Ronald. If I could, when we talked about uh, uh, attitudes. Yes. Because that's what it, that's what we're all dealing with here. And and one thing I've come to realize during the course of my lifetime is it is very very difficult to chart change other people's attitudes. Mm -hmm. But one person's attitude that we do have control over is ours. Is ours. That's right. And in doing so, we can have a big impact on those other individuals. Uh, with all due respect, uh, I've heard the, 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 the young lady speak on, on, on separation and division. Uh, my thoughts on that is there's way too much division in this country and in this community already. Yeah. And I see nothing good that comes from that. I see a lot of good that comes from discussion, right. differences, and even debate, right. but not division. Right. Uh, I think that's where we're at. Y'all talked about the issue of, 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 uh, the, uh, of, of people together because of their race or, or, or their profession or their friends or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's a very real phenomenon that we all live through. You know, we talk to our kids about peer pressure. I can tell you peer pressure is alive and well in the profession that I, that, that, that I work in. Uh, the book of Proverbs addressed the same thing, Samuel, mm -hmm. when he said that in the abundance of counselors, there's what? There's safety. Yes, it is. So people do tend 
to, to, to flock together because of that, and that's a good thing. But the counter to that is, is that the other people that are left to the side, whether they be black or white or Hispanic or whatever, are intimidated by that. Yeah. And so then you, this is where you, you begin to get the division. I, I just don't, I don't see where that, that, that's gonna help us along the way. The last thing that I wanna address very, very quickly. Yeah, DeMarcus, uh, when, when you said, and I, I heard the, uh, the lady speak on, on how things have never, ha haven't changed at all. I, like Samuel and some of the others in here, uh, remember the 60s very, very well. Uh, I remember it as a youngster because I was a youngster then. Uh, and I can remember how horrible those images were on my TV screens. I didn't live through that. I can't begin to tell you how that was. But I can tell you how things are now in my profession. And the difference is, is that are these things occurring across the country with law enforcement and the black and the minority community? Absolutely, nobody would deny that. Mm -hmm. But what I will tell you, and I can speak with a great deal of authority and definitive about it because I live it every day, mm -hmm. is that it is not as condoned by an organization itself like it was back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can tell you that for every law enforcement officer out there that doesn't believe it, there's 10,000 that do, <laughs> that those individuals ought to be accountable for their actions. Mm -hmm. And that, is the big difference between there and now. Mm -hmm. And and I agree with you. Things things have changed. Things have gotten better and there is more accountability. And for some who may feel the pressure because some people are expressing what they feel, we the only way to learn, the only way to grow the only way to come to viable solutions is to be able to hear and decipher throughout everything what people are saying and come up with the best solution to the problems that we're facing. And before you say something, I want to read an excerpt out of this letter that speaks directly to that. It says, you may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins? Why marches? And so forth. Isn't negotiation a better path? You are exactly right if you're called for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such a creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent reg reg register. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that the individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered <coughs> realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent godflies 
to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. We therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in the tragic attempt to live in monologue rather than dialogue. So in other words, the need for tension is to foster growth. I give it uh, an example of how a seed turns into a flower. When a seed is buried in the ground, it is protected by its protective coat. It first has to break through the coating, bust through the ground, the dirt, and it has to take root in the dirt before you're able to see the beautiful flower that comes out of that seed. But the tension to get there, the struggle to get there is hard. But the beauty that is produced from the struggle is well worth it. I think that we are well worth the struggle and the tension. The beauty of our tapestry that sits in here tonight, it's well worth it. I can't agree with segregation because the God I believe in does not condone that. But we have to foster, we have to foster constructive dialogue that is well informed and that is honest and is not only dependent upon personal experience, but it is dependent upon all of our experiences in order to make things better. Go ahead. Yes, that's one thing I do love is an open conversation. And when I'm looking out at, at all of you guys here, I don't see any babies. We should not be wearing children gloves. We shouldn't be doing any of this. The time, like, like my mother just got on speaking, my sister just got on speaking, this is something that needs to be talked about. There is a difference, and people don't realize this. Segregation, separation are two different things, okay? Segregation is not like the time with Martin Luther King where we need equal schools and we need this and we need to integrate. We need, it's not that type of thing. Segregation is the move, completely removal from the government and everything else. We had this in um, 1920, the Black Wall Street. I don't know how many of you heard of that. But we had it and it was going strong, real strong. And then one day, it was an <laughs> incident between a, bell, a, a man who's working in the elevator and a white woman. Screen rape. I don't know what exactly happened. A lot of different encounters, you know, people spoke of, of this. But it caused a city burning down. There were bombs dropped in different areas on black people. First time any type of bomb ever been used in the United States against their own citizens. They were dropped on black people. These people were thriving on their own. Separation. They had their own banks. They gave out their own loans. You know, they, the black people had no problem with this. But and during that time, the only problem that was they, they were having, because they were amongst each other. There's a lot of people, I'm not, I don't know any of you people here, but I do know that uh, Owensboro has a population of the clans here too. The problem is that with these clan or white supremacists, 
is that they do not want to see black people thriving without them. You have them telling us that, go back to Africa. How many people are gonna pay for us to get a ride back? You know, <laughs> I would gladly go. Hey, my mother did a DNA uh, from uh, Nigeria. We found out we're from Nigeria, the Yoruba people. Okay, so there are a lot of people who, can't, who can leave if the high said, but how can we leave if it's like as though that the United States got a hold on black people? I mean, in the end, like I know, you, you know, you're speaking of um, that, you know, in the church, the guy don't believe in separation or segregation. Like I said, there's a big difference. A lot of people don't realize that slavery did not start in 1619. It started in 1555. So, I mean, there's been a whole lot of these things going on now. And frankly, I'm 38. I have no business feeling tired like I've been here over 60 or 70 years. I should not be feeling like that. There's a lot of people saying, well, black people, you kill each other every day. So what, you, you want a ticket too so you can help us out? I mean, why do we have to do that? I mean, if we're in Chicago, if there are killings, people don't understand that why there are killings. South Africa had their apartheid, I'm gonna say this really quick. South Africa had their apartheid, right? Then it was a flip, somehow that the Africans that are in South Africa were able to gain some control. The white people were pushed off into small communities. The white folks there started fighting each other, killing each other. So it's not about, it's a black on black crime, because white folks do it too. Asians, if they're in their own little group, they will fight amongst each other too. So the whole ending of this whole, to me, the whole problem that we're having, the ending of it is to separate. If I say, if we can't get along and this stuff been going on too long, and you're telling us like, baby steps, baby steps. No, you get people shot down in the streets. We do not give birth to our children for them to be murdered. That's not something I plan on doing. And you're not gonna see me hanging around talking about, I forgive you, I can't do that. I'm never gonna let anybody take anyone from me and not, please. You know, good and well, these white folks here, somebody stole one of their children from them, oh, they're gonna, they're gonna be out there. We're the only ones who sit around and keep on saying, I'm gonna pray on it and it's gonna be all right. But it's keep on happening. You know, you hear black someone come to the church, for what? I can't make, you know what? Martin Luther King did a marching for me. I'm not marching. I'm not doing any of that stuff. And I understand that you have your, your, what you're supposed to stick to, and I understand that. I understand where you're coming from, that sometimes when you do speak to white people, and I know this, I went to a white school too, that you do have to, it's a certain way you gotta fix the little box up. It's gotta be pretty. It should not have to be done like that. I should be able to voice my opinion without you taking it personal, because you don't know me, I don't know you. When I'm speaking on things that happened to me with white folks, obviously it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, my first time meeting any of you out here. Do not take it personal. You don't have to go out and search for a black friend, to tell you the truth. You just understand that there's something going on that's not right. That's it. I'm not gonna tell you to go around. I'm not gonna tell you not to be proud of being white. Do that, because I'm proud of being who I am. I'm not gonna tell anybody not to be proud of who they are. But the simple fact is, when you say that you're proud, be proud. You don't have to murder anybody else in your pride. Thank That's you. That's all. Thank you. I wanted to address, yes ma'am. She's got her sister and her mother. And all respect to the, all respect to this, to the panel, this is what I come here for, a discussion mm -hmm. to hear what the black community has to say and, and try to find a way to come together in discussion 
rather than having the panel just kind of consume everything. Mm -hmm. Let me also say, uh, as my wife did, that this is the first time in the three events that we've had where I am hearing honest points of view. Now, I must say I am astonished to hear the vo that, that very negative uh, approach. I would hope that there's another way, but this is the first time I've heard the truth. Mm -hmm. And we want more of it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Get more people to come. It's the, this, is the, this is one of the purposes of the discussion so that we can have an honest and frank discussion. We can agree or disagree without becoming disagreeable. But the more opportunity that we allow for people to make their voices heard in a respectful way, the more opportunity we are afforded to coming up with solutions on how to make things better. Because that's the purpose. You may not agree with separation or segregation. You might agree with the alternative, but does it make them right? Or does it make them wrong? No, they're entitled to their opinion and to live the way in which they choose. But I think we can foster enough discussion and enough, and enough dialogue where we can come up with some solutions to some problems that we have. In the back. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to make two very quick comments. The first is separation is just a, 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 a somebody who's grounded in the past. We have to be grounded in the future. Our focus needs to be proactive to the future. Yeah, Owensboro is not a perfect community. I'm a city commissioner. We're not a perfect community. Neither is you know Bowling Green. Okay, uh, they haven't passed a fairness ordinance. Okay, let's not turn Bowling Green into a panacea of equality. It's not. Uh, the big two things with our community: we have an African American police chief, Art Elam. Because of him, we've not had the kind of incidents in Ferguson and other places because he gets out in the community. We have community-based policing that have done a terrific job. But we had a very frank discussion. Angela was there probably about six months ago after we had an incident down on Fifth Street. And it was African-American officers arguing with the community about why they were mistreated. It was the, so, or, it was the event that I organized that did Yes, it was an excellent event. And I think I'm okay with open discussion, but let's not turn Owensboro into a panacea. Nine years ago, we had the Klan here. And there were just as many, they were, they were triple, quadruple outnumbered by the number of people, right-thinking people who said this is wrong and there wasn't combativeness and they look like idiots, which is what they are. That simple. So this is a wonderful community. We're not perfect, but we're moving in the right direction. Angela. I just wanted to address um, the integration issue because my father, he's 68. He grew up in South Georgia, in Cordial, Georgia, uh, which is very, probably still really a racist place. But he has scars on his knees from being trampled on when him and another group of teenagers try to integrate the state park because they couldn't swim in a certain spot or they couldn't go to this certain spot in the park and have their picnic. And he agrees, I'm having your back right now, because he also thinks not that he hates anybody or hates white people, but he saw what happened after integration. We didn't have our own businesses anymore. We didn't have, um, a lot of the black teachers couldn't get jobs even if the children could go to the schools because they let the white teachers keep the jobs. There's so many ways that segregation still happens. And when it's coming from the mainstream or the authority, which is usually white, it's tolerated, it's accepted. 
But when a black person says something about the same thing, you know, people might think she's angry or whatever, but you have to understand where she's coming from. Mm -hmm. Because if you live through that and you saw how everything changed and how now um, just the businesses in the community and they don't thrive because like you said, Tulsa was burnt down because black people were succeeding. Jim Crow came through because after slavery was over, uh, Black people started getting a leg up on things, and it was like, wait a minute, you know, we still want to be in control. Over the decades, everything, every, every single time something black succeeds, you're exactly right. The majority's not okay with it, and they find a way, the FBI or the presidential um, administration, they find a way to shut it down. Even at Kentucky Westlands campus, for instance, some of my students have been trying to get Greek organizations there black Greek organizations, one of which I am a member, very proud member of Delta Sigma Theta, and we're public service sororities uh, and fraternities. They've been told that those kind of organizations wouldn't be a good social fit and that they have bad reputations. They don't want those black students to, you know, have their own bubble or their own thing that they, because they might start getting a little bit better than the rest of the student body. <laughs> so what you're saying is very true. A lot of times when there's any kind of progress, there's always a way to revert. But when it's coming from the white majority, it's okay. And when it's coming from black people who say, well, I remember a time where we were thriving and we were segregated, but we still had our own success, then it sounds crazy. But it, you know, you just have to understand the background, what people have actually lived through. So and if my father has lived through being trampled on and he's still alive, some of those people trampling on him are, are still, still alive, alive and they've passed it down. So it's not, it's not over. So since we're not in a segregated or separate society now, what sorts not of things... Legally. Not legally. Yeah. Not legally. What sorts of things can we do as a community to bring things together. I'm trying to get people in that have not spoke. So just be patient. I, don't know, what I know, but I'm trying to get other people in <laughs> that have not spoke, that have their hands up. And first of all, this gentleman right here on the second row, then the lady in the back. I know Mr. Marnell, you've been standing up, but you've already spoken. I'm trying to get other people that have not had an opportunity oh. to speak to speak. Am I supposed to go now? <laughs> go ahead and then pass the mic up to him. Okay. Um, I'm not sure where to begin, but where do we go is something that I think maybe I have a, 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 an invitation. I'll just say an invitation. I am from Brescia University and we are hosting the Martin Luther King Jr. event this uh, January. We've really put a lot of effort into this because I, I just think we have to. Right. And um, I'm aware of, I haven't been to the other two meetings because I didn't read the book and I didn't, you know. But tonight I came because I thought this was going to be a little different. It, the article in the newspaper, thank you, Angela, was wonderful, you know, about this. And so um, I just want to apprise you, I suppose, of what is going to be happening in preparation for the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. Let me interrupt you for a minute to ask you a question. What did you think would be different about tonight? Exactly this, that there would be more people here and it would probably be more integrated. Mm -hmm. okay. So, um, 
and I, I and I have an ulterior motive. <laughs> Actually, okay. I want to talk to you afterwards because I I have a list. I want to invite you to be a part of our preparations leading up to Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Okay. So what I want to tell you about, though, is I belong to an interfaith um, ministerial association, mm -hmm. and that has done so much good for me personally because now I can claim friends that I might never have known otherwise people who are not Christian, people who are Christian but of a different denomination than my own. So it's been a marvelous experience, and I do appreciate that, that explanation of friends. <laughs> and um, when you get to know someone personally, mm -hmm. the, the barriers are lessened. Right. Not that you don't have to still work through a lot, but it's worth that. And talk about struggle. One thing I did not hear mentioned was our common human experience mm -hmm. of struggle mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with race, although it can. Right. But there are commonalities. We all know what it is to struggle. Right. Our struggles are different, but we do have an experience of struggle regardless. Um, what I wanted to share with you is that in leading up to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day is that we do, we're, we're going to show a documentary on Thursday before called Anatomy of Hate. Mm -hmm. And um, Sheriff Kane, I would, I would encourage law enforcement, everybody to come and see this. It is, it is a difficult documentary to watch and um, Rhonda and I want to ask you if you'll be on the panel <laughs> afterwards. Okay. And um, that's one reason I came tonight. But, the but my main reason was because I wanted to experience this. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm hoping that you'll see this in the paper. It will have a press release and that you'll come. And what we're trying to do is try to give an experience a common experience to all of us because we've got to have more of those. And so if you come to see uh, Anatomy of Hate, on Saturday we were, we're trying to create a community service experience. Uh, I think we're gonna do a street sweep, you know. So everybody's doing it together. And then we'll have our program on Monday. So um, everybody's invited. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. yes, it'll be January 12th, and um, I believe the time is 6.30. So, um, if you pass the mic whenever you're done. Yes, um, every year there is a Martin Luther King Jr. Day March, mm -hmm. and this year's is we um, host it. But we've done a lot to help plan with the um, Office of Human Relations with Sylvia Coleman. And um, we will be starting at Owensboro Senior High and marching to Brescia University where the program will be held. But leading up to that will be Thursday, January 12th, the um, showing of the documentary Anatomy of Hate. On Saturday, before the Monday, we'll be doing a community service day hoping people from the community will join together to do that and then on monday have the march itself 
Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you so Thank much. You. If you could pass the mic to the gentleman uh, right here, second row. Thank you. Um, I have to get my train of thought here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to use a trick of Dr. Lee Dews, which is to bring the conversation back to the book. Okay. And um, in the book, Mr. Coates is writing to his son, mm -hmm. and he's describing towards the end of the book mm -hmm. about how he, he sees society through his eyes because yes. of his experiences. Yes. And he's hoping that he's, he doesn't do that to his son. So his son has the, the vision to have the self-confidence and the ability to see the world in a more desirable, if you will, way. Uh, so, so what I've observed and what I've been listening is that all of you have spoke about situations that you've been in. Uh, and you were so glad that you looked around, you saw other black people, and so on. And I and I identify with that in that because I'm a first-generation American-born Greek descent. So I remember growing up with a bunch of Greeks being around, and it was wonderful because we had that culture. So I understand that. But over the weeks that we've discussed this book and I hope I'm not digressing, the only positive thing that I heard in promoting integration, because I believe in integration, I disagree with you all, but I understand <laughs> your frustration. However, um, is Mr. Candy's remark about where he was gonna buy his house. Oh. That was very powerful yeah. in that he decided not to get pigeonholed and be part of the community. Mm -hmm. So he insisted on finding a home where everybody else in this community lived. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the key. Where we have pigeonholed, the white people in this country have pigeonholed black communities into the ghettos, into their neighborhoods, into whatever. Now I think it's up to the black communities to break out of there, mm -hmm. to burst out and come into my neighborhood, mm -hmm. or us into your neighborhood, whatever mm -hmm. the case may be, because mm -hmm. that's where we start finding common ground. Mm -hmm. Do you want to speak to that, uh, whoever? Oh, about moving to another neighborhood? Yes, and then uh, uh, Angela, you can speak after that, but uh, Mr. The last, when, when I decided to get a home. We was living in kind of, and I didn't know it at the time, really kind of a mixed neighborhood uh, because we did have <coughs> blacks and whites around. Um, but I seen as I was growing up and looking at television and things like that is that um, if you move into a black neighborhood, you'll probably, your property will probably go down. And uh, uh, I said, man, I, 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 I can't do it. You know, I got to move in the neighborhood where my property's going to go up like theirs, you know. And so um, when the woman came to me and said, uh, do you want to live down in the black neighborhood? Mm -hmm. uh, and she, she's a white woman who said, you want to live? No, 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 I want to live where I want to live is what I told her. And I got rid of her. <laughs> and she didn't 
sell me the house. Me and my wife went out looking for a house. And we found the house. And we bought the house. Mm -hmm. And where we live in that, now we did the same thing. Mm -hmm. We went out and found the house. Now I'm not saying real, real estate agents, not that I don't trust them, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do trust myself. Right. So okay, we, we always got the house that we wanted, you know, and yeah, and you guys know, I mean, uh, that uh, if you don't know, you're going to know now, is that if you live in a neighborhood where it's mostly whites, the property, the property's going to be, stay right there. But if you go in the black neighborhood, it's probably going to stay right there and never probably move up. It's going to move up, kind of going to move up that much. That's why we need to integrate. Well, Angela, um, a lot of people don't understand the, the, the history behind that and the redlining mm -hmm. that took place that pigeonholed people into certain sections and kept them into in a certain financial status, and it was purposely done. Uh, by our government by and that's right. why and it was perpetuated by real estate agents and that's why there is a big mistrust one of the reasons why there's a big mistrust Angela would you mind to speak to that a little bit sure and I was gonna mention redlining as well or just when you know there's a tendency for black applicants you know even if they are qualified for a home loan or for a farm loan like a lot of black farmers were um, you know, somehow their application ends up in the bottom of the pile and it's delayed for months so that by the time a deadline comes around, they can't meet it anymore because the agent or whomever, the loan officer, decided to keep that person just in their stack and not pay attention to their application. So that happens. But also with white flight, when black people did start moving into white neighborhoods, white people yeah. moved to the suburbs. Now the <laughs> suburbs are sprawling and built up and, you know, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And now in Atlanta, for example, um, gentrification has brought white people back to the city, usually affluent white people who can afford a $300,000 condo in the neighborhood where I went to middle school um, that it's surrounding all the pretty high rises and this billion dollar Falcon Stadium across the street from the apartments that I grew up in that are getting torn down as we speak uh, across the street from a church where Morehouse and Spelman had classes before they had campuses, and their churches were also turned, uh, torn down for the Falcon Stadium, things like that. Now black people are being forced to move out of the city because of the high rises that they can't afford or the projects get torn down and they can't you know, afford to live in the city anymore. So black people try, <laughs> but they, they get overridden by um, Marnell James. Marnell James in the back has a, a comment or a question. I just, I just like to say, you know, I'm 78 years old and I've been in Orangeburg all my life. And our main problem here for black people is economics. I worked on the city when the city actually was segregated. We, I worked on a garbage truck. The whites sat in the front of the building, the blacks sat in the back of the building. And we went out and worked on the trucks. Mm -hmm. Now the city jobs are pretty good jobs because mm -hmm. they don't have to get out and dump those cans like we did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. They got these trucks. But you don't see any black city drivers. I've seen one. Well, <laughs> I've well, seen 
well, one. I've I want to see one. I want to see one. Yeah, I've seen one. Now this is a city problem. It is a problem. It's a city problem, and it's a, it's a problem that the city fathers can do something about. Right. And the county. Right. And the county. <laughs> and that's right. our, that's our problem. It's right. an economic problem. Right. And we need to fix that. Yeah. Let, 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 can I can I elaborate on it for a second? Uh, what he said, what he was saying there is that uh, when I was growing up, I seen all these black men with dumping these trash cans, you know. And like Mr. Monell said, when the when when the trucks started getting better and they could dump it by themselves, all white drivers, <laughs> all white drivers, all the black ones are gone. When I used to go down on Fifth Street, you didn't see nothing but black men down there. The white and the drivers was white. I noticed that too. Okay, I just noticed that. Okay, but uh, uh, now I've seen and, and and like you said, I hadn't seen. I, therefore, I, I seen one black. I said, "Where's that? Where's the black drivers? What? They use all white drivers. I only seen one just recently." Just recently. We're gonna we're gonna go back to the book and change the direction of the discussion. I ain't forgot about you. Jane Ellen. I don't know if you heard of her, but she's a white woman who did the experiment between the black the brown eyes and the blue eyes. Look her up. Yes, if you yes. haven't heard of Jane Elliott. <laughs> On uh, page one hundred and thirty, it says Perhaps that is why when you discover that the killer of Mike Brown would go unpunished, you told me you had to go. Perhaps that is why you were crying because in that moment you understood that even your relatively privileged security can never match a sustained assault launched in the name of the dream. Our current politics tell you that, that should you fall victim to such an assault and lose your body, it somehow must be your fault. Trayvon Martin's hoodie got him killed. Jordan Davis's loud music did the same. John Crawford should never have touched the rifle on display in Walmart. <laughs> Mr. Powell should have known not to be crazy. And all of them should have had fathers, even the ones who had fathers, even you, without its own justifications, the dream would collapse upon itself. You first learned this from Michael Brown. I first learned it from Prince Jones. Michael Brown did not die as many of his defenders supposed, and still the questions behind the questions are never asked. Should a sultan and officer of the state be a capital offense rendered without trial with the officer as judge and executioner? Is that what we wish civilization to be? And all the time the dreamers are pillaging Ferguson for municipal governance and they are torturing Muslims and their drones are bombing wedding parties by accident and the dreamers are quoting Martin Luther King and exalting nonviolence for the weak and the biggest guns for the strong. Each time a police officer engages us, death, injury, maiming is possible. It is not enough to say that this is true of anyone or more true of criminals. 
The moment the officers began their pursuit of Prince Jones, his life was in danger. The dreamers accept this as the cost of doing business, accept our bodies as currency because it is the tradition. As slaves, we were this country's first windfall, the down payment on its freedom. After the ruin and liberation of the Civil War came redemption for the unrepentant South and reunion and our bodies became this country's second mortgage. In the New Deal, we were their guest room, their finished basement, and today, with the sprawling prison system, which has turned the warehousing of black bodies into jobs program for dreamers and a lucrative investment for dreamers today, when 8% of the world's prisoners are black men, our bodies have financed the dream of being white. Now when you hear those words, what did it make you think of? I looked at this just to lead into, I looked, when I looked at this or read this, this narrative made it seem like the, the blame game, like you're blaming the victim, so to speak. And the same argument could be used when defense attorneys are defending men who rape women and say, well, if your dress wasn't so tight or if you didn't wear the red lipstick or if you weren't out past midnight by yourself, uh, it seemed as if the blame game was being used when I read that narrative. When you heard those words, how did it make you feel? How did it impact you? center. So my thing was, why are you questioning me, 21 years old, but you have kids, same time and night, but not a mumbling word towards them. And I know he didn't say anything towards them because they live uh, across a, uh, a street from me. And I seen them actually go into their house. So it kind of questioned me like, who, what's, what's, what's to blame me for as far as being out late? Like what's going on with the situation? Why are you questioning me? Are you testing me to see like, am I gonna do the things that you see on TV? Like what the other people do? That's not the type of person that I am, but it still goes to my mind like, why are you doing this to me? What, what have I done for you to do something like this to me? What, what are you gonna blame me for at this time? Does anybody have any other comments to that? I'd like to read this as Dr. King, this is a part of his letter, said oppression people cannot remain uh, oppressed forever. The urge for freedom will eventually come. Now, let me tell you something, people. Um, when uh, 
And Sheriff Kane, don't, don't get me wrong on this, okay? Because I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to whoever's doing this. Um, when policemen do things like this, at one time, there's nothing much that a black person can do. Because we didn't have guns. We didn't go out and get guns. Now it's legal for anybody to get guns. And there are, there are men who buying guns, just shooting police for the heck of it. Because at one time, that's what they used to do to us. They <coughs> beat us up if they want to. He talked about that in this letter when um, uh, policemen just go out and beat somebody because they wanted to. Well, those days are over. You, you, if you beat somebody, they, you might get beat back or you might get killed. And they gotta understand that, hey, those days are not like their father's days. Uh, you can't do that anymore because you, you might lose your life. And what he's saying is, yeah, uh, the man's, go man's gonna find his freedom. The man is gonna find his freedom one way or the other. He's gonna find it in the graveyard for his freedom are you going to take somebody with him as he go? But yeah, freedom is coming. One way or the other. Freedom is coming. Where's, where's oh, okay, I'm sorry. I was looking for him. I'll make this quick, though. I'm not going <laughs> to be long-winded again. Um, when we, I said, just listen to like the discussion. And like the, uh, the city commissioner was here, and he was talking about how you know you're living in the past. Are these not old wounds that haven't been closed yet? How can you tell the people that they're living in the past when it hasn't even been covered up? You know, you're still doing the, the same thing. Right, it's, right, thank you. So I'm like, so you can't tell the people, because that's not helping the situation, if you're going to tell the people that <laughs> those old, you're speaking about the past. I'm like, you can say that because you didn't have to live this life. You don't tell people who lived this life you know that it's something you know happened in the past and uh martin luther king is one thing i heard that he had said i can't remember the quote exactly right though but i know he mentioned that when he looked back at the struggle he did for integration he had to sit back and think to himself it seems i feel like i have led my people into a burning house so he did turn around and start having feelings about the whole integration idea let me, let me say something about that no, me. I'm, it's me. I don't <laughs> All right. <laughs> People, um, I, I, I want to say two things if I can remember right. Everybody's opinion is okay. Whatever you say is your opinion and it's okay. And you have to accept that, their opinion. We're living in a free country where we can say what we want to say, what we want to say. Whether you believe it or not or want to believe it or not. That's okay, okay? I'm just gonna say something else and I forgot it. <laughs> anyway, Opinions I, don't excuse I, hate, though. That's true. It's a hateful opinion. That's true. Right, <laughs> right. And like you can't yell fire if in a movie theater or in the library and there's not a fire. But before you say something, I'm gonna read just one more excerpt because we gotta, I wanna get a whole lot in. I'm trying to. <laughs> of the book so that we can stay on a uh, topic of the book but on page 145 when she when he is interviewing or talking to uh, mrs uh, jones and uh, she is expressing how she felt 
after her son had died and he was trying to get to know him a little bit more because he knew him but he didn't know him know him so he wanted to really know who he was and how his family was dealing with the loss because she had worked so hard to pay for her children to escape that type of trap that oftentimes blacks feel that their kids are gonna be confined to. So she says, she alluded to 12 years, I'm back up. I asked Dr. Jones if her mother was still alive. She told me her mother passed away in 2002 at the age of 89. I asked Dr. Jones how her mother had taken Prince's death and her voice retreated into an almost whisper. And Dr. Jones said, I don't know that she did. She alluded to 12 years a slave. There was, she said, speaking of Sol Solomon Northrop, he had means. He had a family. He was living like a human being. And one racist act took him back. And the same is true of me. I spent years developing a career, acquiring assets, engaging responsibilities, and one racist act. It's all it takes. And then she talked again of all that she had through great industry, through unceasing labor, acquired in the long journey from grinding poverty. She spoke of how her children had been raised in the lap of luxury, annual ski trips, jaunts off to Europe. She said that when her daughter was studying Shakespeare in high school, she took her to England. And when her daughter got her license at 16, a Mazda 626 was waiting in front I sense some connection to this desire to give and the raw poverty of her youth. Now, I wanna kinda go back to the comment that I had made earlier when blacks, when they heard some of the rhetoric that was being talked and talked about and spoken about along the campaign trail, how we saw that as bells and whistles, but other people they saw it, but they could and had the luxury of looking past it. This passage made me think of our differences of black versus white in our view in the world and the preparation as parents that we have to take in order to protect our children so they can live. What does, how does that make you feel to know that you have to take these types of measures being so precise and so perfect <coughs> just to ensure that your child lives. There Has was, anybody ever thought about that? There was an incident that I had to do with my son. And I think I've said this before. Uh, my son was going to, maybe I shouldn't mention the school. <laughs> uh, he was going to a uh, all-white school, and I went to all-white school, and I know how I was felt when I went to all-white school. So I switched him to um, Onsboro Miller School. Yeah, that's the way I want to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I switched him to Onsboro Miller School because I didn't want my son to grow up to think 
he was white. Because at one time, when I was growing up, I didn't have a dad. My dad died when I was four years old. I had only had my mother. I went, and and uh, when I went to an all-white school, uh, I thought I was a white boy. Yeah, I thought I was white. I got my hair long, you know, burned my hair. You know, you said you had to use that uh, lie to straighten out hair at that time. <laughs> burned my head and all that. You know, I, I didn't want my son to go that route. So I, I told him, I say, son, uh, you're going to have to go to a school that is mixed with blacks and whites. And, I, and this, this really influenced me to do this. I asked my son what he wanted to become. You know what he told me he wanted to be? President of the United States. Mm. And son, you got to come to Orangeburg Senior High then, and you're going to represent all the people, not just white people. So that's what I did. Because I remember Eisenhower said, I'm representing all the people. <laughs> No, he's representing all just only white people. I knew that, you know. So I'm just telling you the truth, you know. So um, he came to Owensboro Senior High, um, and I, I, I know I did the right thing because he can talk to both sides, you know. And if, if, if I was, if I had to do all again and I was a white person, I'd say my son won't be president of the United States, you're going to senior high. You're going someplace where they're mixed. Word to everybody. Well, everybody's represented. And, you know, sometimes I don't think people realize uh, the degree to which people go in order to assimilate themselves into mainstream society. It's like it's a stripping away of their self-identity in order not to be different, in order not to fit in. Like, I could identify with her when the the lady when she said sometimes with her afro people asking her what is that on top of your head or you know refusing to serve her because sometimes even now with myself whenever I wear my hair and it's natural curly because my hair is natural curly the first thing people say is what happened to your hair <laughs> <laughs> and it's like nothing this is just I didn't flat iron it you know plain and simple if I choose to flat on my hair, it will be straight. But for some blacks, that makes them uncomfortable if they're not comfortable in their skin. So they have to start this process of stripping away <coughs> their true selves in order not to be considered the other. So does anybody have a similar experience? She's got a question right here. Okay, what I want to say. What I want to say is that as uh, far as you talking about the separation thing, the only reason it's going that way because white America, racist America, is pushing us that way. When you don't want to rent to us, when you won't hire us, when you don't want to be bothered with us. And far as I'm, this is a good form, and I'm glad they have, I'm glad they have this because people who really want to be, you know, want to know, we need this. That way, we you can go back to your family, your friends, if you're sincere. You can go back to your family and friends and talk to them because we're not pushing you away, you're pushing us away. You're making us be separate. You're making it go back to that. It ain't saying we want that, but you're making it happen when the killings and all that, when you know you can't get things. So it's making us go back to ourselves that we're gonna have to rebuild again on our own because we can't get us we can't come together. And you need us. You do need us. We need each other. Definitely. We need each other. Yeah, uh, we do need each other. But what I'm saying, see, we know how, we know the struggle. Mm -hmm. yes. So when the when the when the Trump yeah. thing go down, you are gonna need us because we know how to struggle. So that's what I'm saying. 
Well, when you were talking about uh, as far as like the difference, as far as uh, like what we have to make, uh, like as far as living black, sometimes we feel like we have to go two steps forward, or we have to put more inside of us just to like feel equal uh, as far as to the uh, uh, as far as to the white ones. I just want to read something. Uh, yesterday, the author of the book, uh, Mr. Coates, he was on the Daily Show. And uh, he was asking you know, a question as far as discussing the racial barriers President Obama had to overcome while in office. Did anybody see him on the Daily Show? So some of you already know, you already were of it then. Uh, this is what he said. Uh, if I have to jump six feet to get the same thing that you have to jump two feet for, that's how racism works. To be president, Obama had to be scholarly, intelligent, president of the Harvard Law Review, the product of some of our greatest educational institutions, Capable of talking to two different worlds, Donald Trump had to be rich and white. That's the difference. That's the difference. This is from the author. And I, you know, once I seen that, I was like, that's, I mean. That's this president, as far as I'm concerned, is going to go down one of the smartest, intelligent president we've ever had. Now, I might not live to see it written, and it's going to be in the book. I guarantee you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He wanted to clarify that. He wanted to clarify. We, young lady in this sweater, not, the red not this sweater. President, the no, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> talking about President. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> I owe you. <laughs> Go ahead. We've talked about a lot of things, everything from the very simple, I think it was it your wife, or his wife that was sitting there? It's, well, the woman that was sitting there and talking about her and her husband and just making uh, black friends, to the very complex about jobs and everything, the simple to the complex, and that's the areas we have to cover, is everything from the simple to the complex. Right. I haven't heard many of you talk about, and I'm scared and shaking at this talk, but to, I haven't heard many of you talk about uh, you all having white friends, and I'm from Owensboro, and um, I've never been prejudiced. I was, I'm a retired teacher, elementary teacher, and I loved all my students, and I had black students. In the first year I taught, I taught under a minority program, and I had six or seven blacks to each white. And then all my rest of the years of teaching, I probably had one or two blacks each year. But I was just as fair to them and loved those black children just as much as I loved those white children. Thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm. And Sam, I, Samuel, I, Samuel I, well, when I was in school with you and graduated with you. <laughs> I remember you. Yes. <laughs> no, I came to the first meeting of one of these meetings, second meeting I was out of town, but I came up and talked to you afterwards with it in mind listening because all my life, I wanted to have, make closer black friends. And I'm a real social people and have a lot of friends, but I didn't know how. And I want you all to understand that. It's not, it's not easy for us. I mean, you all have had a struggle. You've had it hard. Right. And as you've said, somebody up there said that we all have our own struggles in life, right. whether it's illness, family, children, whatever. And I've not had your struggles and I can't imagine being black, Spanish, Asian, whatever, and going through that, I cannot stand it when someone's precious. But 
do you have white friends and have you run across some that are so empathetic? And I would love to know how to, but I've never known. Now I do have, there are two or three black couples that go to our church. I have been to one black couple, they come to my house, I go to theirs. But otherwise, I haven't known how to cross that barrier. And at some point, when we start out in a simple way, that simple way will grow. Mm -hmm. Because I have family, I have a husband, I have children that they can hire people and they like black people and my, my children have had black friends, my grandchildren have black friends. But for some reason, I, I don't know if I got to teach you and I'm not going to talk too long. <laughs> you got your teacher voice. But know that anybody wants to go to lunch with me, I'll go lunch with you. And actually, <laughs> Sam, when I came up and talked to you that night after the first meeting, I was going to say, well, would you and your wife like to go after me? And I Why thought, did you ask? Because I thought you were that big football player that was so famous and wouldn't just want to go lunch with little oh, me. <laughs> I promise that's the truth. And that's all I'm going to say. All right. Thank you so I much. white friend. White friends, stand up, stand up for our white friends, stand up, stand up, stand up. There's one right. And it's white. Hey, David, stand up, David. Thank you. Love yes. Got black friends and black friends right there. Shame of this, you Got black and what? in a building where there are only two black employees in the whole building. I work at Davis County High School and I made it a point to stay with the with uh, Davis County Public Schools because a lot of young people did not have that contact, that personal contact with a black person. And I felt that it was important me to hold the fort down is what I was thinking in my head because kids need this because the world is much bigger than Owensboro, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Because it did something to me when I started out driving school buses and a little kindergartner came to get on the bus and I opened the door and she saw me and it frightened her. Mm -hmm. And her she grabbed the monitor's hand really, really tight and you know she walked her easter on the bus and i said it's okay it's going to be all right i'm going to get you to school and you're going to get there in one piece and she just smiled and then the type of job that i have i work one-on-one -on -one with students in fact one that one of my students that i had worked with before is here now he and his mom 
and being able to have that intimate contact with the student where they're able to be break their barriers down and be in close proximity with me it really breaks down those stereotypes that they may have been taught or may have been told you know from home because they have to trust me to help them graduate or to help them get through this test or to help them get some sort of you know uh, uh, information that they may need so I felt it was important that I stay in a system that was majority white so that kids could have that experience and that is good that is good on your part it really is because you'd be surprised how many people you've helping that uh, if you wasn't around they wouldn't be exposed and exposure is very important oh yeah Exposure is very, very important. What'd you say? I said, you helped my husband, Oh, Mr. Easley's yeah. wife. <laughs> <laughs> I really think a lot of him. I really do. Rondolyn, I need, I need to interrupt for just one minute okay. to let people know that we have 15 minutes oh, left. Okay. I don't I don't want us to get to the to the point where we have to go shoving people out the door and we're in the middle of something really deep. Yeah. So sure, the other Kay. thing is that what I'm going to suggest is that we have to be out of here at 8:30. Oh. If we stop at 8:15, I would suggest that we do the universal thing and we all eat cookies together. <laughs> okay? Because if we when we when we get up out of these chairs and we go back and we we get something to eat, we talk to each other in a normal way and we get to know each other as individuals. Oh, right. And I think that's that's the big part of this, is okay. to be able to know each other as individuals, not as a category okay. of, of belief or, or color or anything. Yeah. Could you pass it to Ms. Hooks and then we'll pass it to Sheriff Kane? It was your striking beauty. That's why she didn't want to get on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's it. I'm, my Patrick was baptized by Garshwa Matali at Church for All. Yeah. And Rod, your cousin, right, Drake, was yeah. his Sunday school teacher. Mm -hmm. We don't see color. I mean, Good. it's just what a beautiful thing. He got yeah. baptized at Fourth Street ba Baptist Church. <coughs> and so blessed. But sometimes I can't understand Brother Matali, but I love him. <laughs> his amens are inspiring. Yes. But my yeah. little Patrick has a beautiful afro like this 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 pretty lady's right there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it when davis county went to sweet 16 he had to keep it growing out because he was a videographer 30 pencils in that yeah. afro he could hide yeah. it yeah. but they called him jew boy at school uh -huh. but so, it, i mean the first it, thing i asked when he cut his hair why did you cut your pretty curls that was the first thing i asked it, well it was oh, like geez. a, a dog <laughs> well they called him jew boy and I mean, wow. and, and I mean, people are, pe pe I mean, it happens to because everybody. he had an afro. I mean, I'm, he really did. He has a beautiful head of hair, and I mean, but I mean, he's been taunted by it too. And really, to be honest, women have not had the right to vote or inherit their husband's uh, estates for very many years. Mm -hmm. Suffrage has not been that long ago. If you think about it, we've been repressed for a long time. And I do sort of second guess that when I'm mowing the grass, you know, <laughs> being being a, at, on the same level is not always good. But right. she is a wonderful person at the high Thank school, you. and everyone loves you. And I don't think they see you as having a darker skin, Rondolyn. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Just a tan. 
Yeah, <laughs> one I admire, you know, but, but, but I don't know. I, I hate to think that everybody is closed-minded. Sometimes I think darker-skinned people tend to mistreat. I live outside of St. Louis now, and sometimes I think they're a little bit uh, taken aback by being friendly, and I don't know what it is. I don't know. It uh, mm. could be because southern or whatever, but I mean, it, it works both ways. Right. Right. Fair or to, dark skin. I have to um, interject here uh -huh. because I have, I need you to see color. Mm -hmm. yes. People need to see color. I need you to know all the history that's behind this. I yeah. need, that's where it starts for the lady who was asking about black friends. Yes. If some white people were more conscious, were more informed, a coworker, for instance, she put her hands in my hair while I was filling up my bottle at the water fountain. Oh. Now, that's wrong anyway, because personal wrong. space. Yeah. But if she that's had known anything about black history and the fact that Sarah Bartman, AKA the Hot and Top Venus, was put on exhibit yeah. in museums around Europe because she had a big butt, which is a feature that was more common for mm -hmm. black women, African mm -hmm. women specifically. Yeah. And there were a lot of instances of black people being put on display, on display. because of our lips or our noses or our butts. Mm -hmm. If my coworker had understood that, she would understand why I get so yeah. offended when you touch me because of a feature that you're not used to. Yeah. You need to see color, not in a way that... Um, negative. Exactly, not in a negative way, yeah. but with the Burmese population here, for instance. they If you come from a refugee camp where people in uniforms might kill you, right. you're going to be afraid of the police when you get here. So police have to start, and this goes to the same thing for um, community policing in black neighborhoods, Police need to research the history of the people that they encounter every day mm -hmm. so that they know how to approach. Um, the same goes with teachers who mm -hmm. have students that come from low-income uh, neighborhoods. You have to understand that things like that, or even just being black and being conscious, is psychological. Mm -hmm. So if you see color, then you're able to recognize maybe what you should and should not do or how you should approach people. So everybody, please see color and celebrate that. Uh, celebrate those heritages celebrate that come our behind the color. Let me just say this. When I was teaching, kids walk up to me and say his name was so-and-so or so-and-so. I don't want to say those names. But, <laughs> but I, I, when I told my students, I want to know your real name. I don't want no nicknames. I want to know your real name. So don't call kids by their nickname. Call them by their real name. It's very important that they know that. Yes. Sheriff Kane, you had a comment or question? Uh, yes, Ronald. I, I, let me go back. You know, I was raised uh, uh, by my dad and mom, wonderful Christian parents. Uh, I didn't know anything about racism. Uh, we weren't raised to be racist. My dad had a theory, and he used to tell me all the time, he said, Keith, you need to understand that you're not any better than anybody else. Amen. But you also need to understand that nobody's any better than you. Right. Amen. And he always had a way of breaking things down into their most simplistic. And I learned a lot of those kind of uh, lessons by because he taught them by example, primarily. Mm -hmm. Where I was first introduced to racism was in the United States Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Now, anybody that knows me knows that, that I think veterans are, are near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. Right. But when I first encountered racism was in the Republic of Vietnam. I was in an infantry unit, and I spent most of my time in the bush. And I can tell you that the, 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 the black Marines there were literally my brothers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we depended upon each other. And we survived by each other. And we had a mutual respect for each other. And we loved each other. 
When we would go back into the battalion rears uh, between operations, racism was alive and well. Mm. Or those, those, those Marines didn't have anything to do after they, they left their desk or their chow halls or whatever where they worked, and they were very divided. And I can remember how discerning and how disturbing it was to us to come out from the environment that we lived in over right. there and go back to there and see how they treated each other. We just absolutely couldn't believe that. But what I took away from all of this and what I've tried to apply during the course of, of, of my life is the difference was with those two groups is that we needed each other right. to survive. Right. We yeah. saw each other as equals because we were equals. Right. And there was just there was no discussion about that. Right. Now I know that I know everything that's been mentioned here is is very very real. I can't pretend to put myself in in the struggles of each uh, of, of other people, mm -hmm. but I do know this, folks. What cuts to the heart of this issue is mutual respect. Right. Yeah. Mutual respect is not just a responsibility, it is an absolute obligation. Yes, it and is. And it's that that's the only way that we'll all come together. Mm -hmm. And I've got to go back to what, what I said when I spoke earlier. I came here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, not because I thought mm -hmm. I should. Mm -hmm. I came here tonight because I needed to be here. Mm -hmm. And I need to be here because I want to know how we can come together. Mm-hmm. Not get not go apart and that that's the a, a little bit of the disturbing things that i've heard tonight which motivates me to work all that much harder what did you before you hand the mic did you get out of tonight what you expected to get or was there something more that you need or wanted well i think we're just on the beginning here on, yeah. the, on, yeah. on the beginning yeah. what i heard was passionate please that that this is a very real issue and we need to work even harder than what we are. It's very easy to become complacent and say, well, yeah, that's an issue uh, that's being dealt with in, in the larger communities across our nation. We don't have so much of a problem here. And quite frankly, I've always thought we, we don't have so much of a problem here. What I'm hearing here is we've got a bigger problem than what I realized. Mm -hmm. That's what I came here for, Ronald, that's what I've heard. And yes, that's, that's, I appreciate being here. Thank you for being here, let, let, and let, I appreciate let you. Let, let me say this. Let me say this. Let me say this real let quick. Let her speak right there, Mr. T. I gotta go pick up my granddaughter. But anyway, <laughs> I want to leave this with y'all. Mm -hmm. And none of my kids are racist. I'm not. We done had Hispanic uh, growing up. My my time See you later. in my house, they had. But long story short, put yourself back in my shoe when you got to go to a court thing with my child fighting skinhead in Wisconsin, and the judge sit up and pull a gun out on his desk. We supposed to be having court. Put his money on the desk. Chief of police sit up there and told me bring my tail on down there. Uh, he's going to lock my tail up. I said, you, uh, you wait right there. I'm bringing my tail on down there, and you lock me up. Now, this is a whole lot of stuff that we can tell you. It'll go on for days. But if no one ain't got time, I just want to leave you with that. <laughs> what was this? Thing? What was this? One thing I definitely learned uh, early in my life is uh, we cannot judge a group or a culture because of what we see them do. Uh, everybody is not the same. See a black person do something negative. You can't say all well, all black people do this. You see a, a policeman do something negative. You cannot say all people all policemen do that. Everybody is different. Yes, they probably in a group a certain group, but you cannot judge everybody because of what that certain 
person does. That's where that's where we are divided. Uh, where I think we are divided, especially in this nation and also in this community, because we see something going on in uh, black community. Oh well, all black people do, doing like that. What we see with the police, we doing all. We cannot put it like that. Everybody is different. We have to accept the people that are doing the, uh, doing the things right. Because I cannot be judged because of what somebody else is doing because that's making me feel bad. Like I'm doing something wrong. I think I'm doing excellent you know, in this community, uh, especially the struggle that I've been through 2016. If you, would, if you would know my story, what I've been through this year, you would ask yourself, how am I even still alive? <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, lost my job, lost my pastor, best friend, and I just got fired Friday. How am I still here? It's something about, that's why I, I'm here because of God. He put me here for a reason. And until he tells me it's time to go, so I'm here for a reason. So that's how, that's how I put because of my Christianity. Uh, I, I know God is real. I know that. That's the reason why I know I'm still here. Some people don't have that same you know, type of thing, but I believe I'm still here. I'm still alive because he has something better, more, something more in store for me. So until he gives me that time to go home, I still got work to do. So something like this. It's still something uh, we need to be working on. So, so that's why uh, we we cannot judge everybody because of you know the negative. There's still something positive that we all can do as a society. We can, we can take this oh, opportunity. That's okay. We can take this opportunity to say our final remarks okay. because we are approaching that 8:15 right. mark. So, uh, since Angela had started speaking, go ahead, go ahead and you say your final remarks, okay. and then uh, Brother Tandy, you can. And for anyone else that would like to say some final remarks about what they got out of today's panel discussion, you're more than welcome just wanted to say we can't judge everyone or lump everybody in a group and have the same expectations from everyone in that group but we can hold people accountable and i struggle with um the notion of mutual respect when it comes to an oppressor and the oppressed because the only person being disrespectful in that situation is the oppressor and this came up in the um birmingham jail letter that the moderate white or even in a lot of cases the liberal white or police officers, when they don't speak up about their cohorts, they might not believe in whatever it is they're doing, brutalizing people. But if they don't speak up about it, if they don't correct it, if they don't strike against it, it's still going to happen. Just like white people have casually here mentioned to me that their parents or their father was in the Klan. Just casually mentioned it. Casually. Did you hold your father accountable? Mm -hmm. You know, some white people are just as guilty of being racist because they don't speak up yeah. when their people close to them, their families, their spouses. Um, so, and I wanted to say something about having white friends because I do have white friends. <laughs> but in a lot of cases, I went to a very diverse high school in every way, but a lot of cases, it has always somehow ended up with my white friend saying something inappropriate, showing me what I learned are their true colors. Not everyone, but some people. Did so, you share with them that they Yes, yes. Very important I always tell people that. why it's yes. problematic. Very important you do that. And I wanted to take a cue from the young lady who was here with the hat on when she talked about Jane Elliott mm. and asking my white brothers and sisters, stand up. If you in this country would want to be treated like black people, Latino people are treated in this country, stand up right now. So if no one's standing, this is a quote from Jane Elliott, if no one is standing, then that lets everyone know that you recognize that there's a problem and you're not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. 
if you wouldn't want to be treated like you know another population in our country is being treated, then that puts the responsibility on you. Let, let me say this before we, I've been wanting to say this. <laughs> I, I guarantee it won't take two minutes. Um, I, I want to say the same thing you saying, that, that was on my mind, is that when you see a black person doing wrong, or if you see a person who's treating another person wrong, you need to step up. Right. You need to say something. And like I said, I don't care if it's black or white, but you need to say something because if you don't, you just as guilty of not saying anything you would be if you had said something. You need to say something. That's all I need to say. See this? Got time in the back, and then I'll have my closing, and then we'll turn it over to Mama and Judy. Sam, go along with what you said. Samuel. I'm going to say it till the day I die. <laughs> Right, they did. And got rid of it. Got rid of it. Right. And so, you know, those people, the people of Scottsdale, Arizona, I, I vote here, I don't vote there, but mm -hmm. I don't know how I would have voted. Mm -hmm. People of Arizona stepped up, right. saw that they didn't want to be treated, the whole population right. didn't want to be treated like the Hispanic population was being treated, and they finally got rid of it. Right. But they should have. They and they did. Have. Right. Does anyone else have any closing remarks or things they want to say that they got from tonight's panel discussion? I just want to share a happy experience I had today. I received a Christmas card, and I opened it up, and there was a picture of uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, a uh, typical sort of picture. And I looked, they were all African. Yes, sir. And I'm going to send it yes, to my family in New England. Oh, good. <laughs> good for you. Oh, anybody else? Well, I just want to say I always enjoy uh, the, the discussion. Uh, I enjoy the energy. I enjoy the honesty that uh, I receive from everyone. And I always look forward to my panelists that are here with me because we kind of feed off of each other. And I just pray that someone learns something. You got something more or something unexpected out of the book discussion that may not have been so neatly intertwined into the pages of the book, but yet and still relevant to the topics and the things that he was trying to convey because I think that that was part of his purpose in writing, was to get us in a room like this to talk about the things that we have been talking about so that we can't continue to sweep things under the table or under the rug so that we can face each other head on. And I can see you as the child of God that you are. Thank you so much for allowing me to do this. I want to thank this. all of you, but mostly I want to thank all of you. Yes.